This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Value Inspiration Podcast. My name is Ton Dobbe, and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration and the author of The Remarkable Effect. I'm creating a tribe of tech entrepreneurs that are on a mission to do something big and meaningful. I invite you to join the tribe as well, especially if you want to create change that matters and put your software business on momentum that you're proud of. The goal that I have with this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. The guest on my podcast today is Greg Silverman, CEO of Concentric Market. I think being a human this day and age is hard. It's just hard. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, we have to just see people for their strengths and the fact that none of us are complete enough. And it's been the mission of the company actually to augment people's intelligence to help them be better people, enrich them. My world, uh, and I think your worldview too, is there's still domain expertise and that matters, right? You need inspiration, you need creativity, you need to understand the zeitgeist and having quantifiable tools that help you understand the forward impact of that has really been our mission to give yeah. people some sense of can I forecast the future you know better than 50% like our forecasts on a weekly basis the standard we're held to is 95% accuracy and that, that it doesn't matter if that's weeks in advance months in advance and sometimes years in advance that has to be the standard because the only way you'll believe a predictive or prescriptive analytics is if it forecasts properly. This is Greg. Since 2010, he's the CEO of Concentric, a software company that licenses Concentric Market, a simulator that improves your planning process and your forecasting capabilities. Previously, he was a Global Managing Director for Analytics and Valuation for Interbrand, where he designed the current version of their brand valuation methodology. He also worked in manufacturing, franchising and consulting. Greg received his BBA in Marketing and Retail from the University of Georgia and his MBA in Management from the J. Mac Robinson College of Business at Georgia State University. He's also the author of the book Turning Complexity into Strategic Advantage and published the Interbrand Top 100 Brand Report. And being an avid reader of exactly that report, this triggered me and hence I invited Greg to my podcast. We explore how brands deliver revenue and value and how a lot of the intangible and hard-to-observe components influence how they maintain relevant in the market. We dig into the key role that people play in all of this and what role technology should play to go beyond just automation. By listening to this podcast, you will learn four things. Firstly, that you know that your software platform is ready to scale when people come to you saying, it's time to fire us because the software is doing everything. Secondly, why, when your software is making accurate predictions, 
you're only halfway in terms of the value that you can really deliver to your customers. Thirdly, that integrity is not, not stealing from your neighbor, it's about having a vision and sticking to it when the world doesn't want you to. And fourthly, that everyone in your company at some point will have to face the fear of failure, but more importantly, face the fear of success. Well, hi, Greg. Good morning and welcome on my podcast. Hey, great to be here. Thanks for the opportunity to share what we're doing. Well, it's a pleasure. And as we just discussed before we started this call, I'm always on a hunt for compelling stories about the value that we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And I think this is absolutely one of them again. So I'm looking forward to this call and yeah, what your company, Concentric Market, is doing in, yeah, in this respect. But before we start, a little bit about you. If you would have to describe yourself in two or three words, char- the characteristics that, that yeah, set you apart, what would that be? Yeah, I would say integrator, creative, and forgiving. Okay. Forgiving as well. That's, uh, <laughs> well, I think, well the human, I think being a human this day and age is hard. It's just hard. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, we have to just see people for their strengths and the fact that none of us are complete enough. And it's been the mission of the company actually to augment people's intelligence to help them be better people, enrich them. Very good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, uh, that's absolutely true. And I think technology can do, definitely do a lot of, of that, but uh, more on that later on. So you've got a company called Concentric Market and started in, tw- in 2010. But what you just told me was that that was not the date where your solution came to market. So tell me a little bit about that. What was the big idea behind your company? How did it all start? Yeah, I used to work in the branding world at a company called Interbrand and help people understand the value of their brand as an asset. And toward the end of my tenure there, people wanted to know how can a brand help deliver revenue, income statement impact. And I thought, well, certainly somebody's figured that out. It's a really important question. And I went looking for it and didn't find it. And when I say find it, I mean an enterprise-wide solution that's an, an application that runs like a Tableau or a Click or you know, where there's hundreds of users on it collaborating. And so I decided to create that product and that enterprise platform. And so it took us a few years to get the model right. I mean, it's a very complex idea about building, you know, the context of how a brand performs. So you have to be able to model it and all of its competitors and everything that's happening in a market. And so we just, just worked on it. You know, it's just a really hard problem to crack, but we, commercialized in 2017, finally did some outside money and started to scale up the business over the last three years. Yeah. So that, that report that you're talking about from Interbrand, the, the, the top 100 brands is, is, well, is something that I actually refer to in my book. And the last three years, I've always been looking at it because it tells a lot about, well, the value for me was that that, that report really tells about like why do these brands grow so fast, faster than anyone else and, and what makes that happen and that's that's where a lot of value can be found and a lot of, a lot of people can learn from that yeah and i think you know i i crafted that framework you're looking at so i'm very proud of it and thrilled that you are using <laughs> what it taught me was there's a lot of intangible and hard to observe components of yeah. how a brand relates and remains relevant in a market and re- relevant to consumers and modeling out quantifying that relationship created all this power to say, okay, 
then how can a brand work to the good of its constituencies and improve, you know, performance and sales? So that that understanding of the brand strength is a key component of that led yeah. me to look for a tool that will give people guidance, right? Because maybe you can look back in the past and see certain things. And a few people can forecast well, but it's not just forecasting, it's prescribing. It's saying, okay, we're starting here and we want to get to a goal over there. We're not get, we're not on plan. What do we do to fix it? Or we're ahead of plan. How do we capitalize on it, right? Not everything's a, a dead dog, right? Some things work, but yeah. they need help when they're working. And the number of complexities and interactions are just too many for us to calculate as people. And so our yeah. system help people. We call it an age intuition, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the whole augmenta- the augmentation dynamic that I always try to kind of pay attention to in my podcast because that's, that's what I believe. It's, uh, there's the automation side, automating people out of a job. And there's the augmentation side. And I think a lot of companies miss an opportunity not addressing that because that's where value just gets bigger because people can do things they've never been able to do before, which is valuable, which is what we need in the world. And it's also what people are prepared to pay premium for. So. No, and it, when I listened to a few of the podcasts before we got together, I thought, hey, this is someone who really sees the difference between artificial intelligence and augmented yeah. intelligence, right? And there's, yeah. there's two AIs, and nothing wrong with artificial intelligence. It's generating fantastic results for many, many people, especially in cost reductions and routine pieces. But my world, uh, and I think your worldview too, is there's still domain expertise, and that matters, Right. You need inspiration, you need creativity, you need to understand the zeitgeist and having quantifiable tools that help you understand the forward impact of that has really been our mission to give yeah. people some sense of, can I forecast the future you know, better than 50%? Like our forecasts on a weekly basis, the standard we're held to is 95% accuracy. And that, that <laughs> doesn't matter if that's weeks in advance, months in advance, and sometimes years in advance. That has to be the standard because the only way you'll believe a predictive or prescriptive analytics is if it forecasts properly. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's an interesting thing that's uh, how your system have behaved in the last couple of months. But I think <laughs> that's where the 5% part parts fits. <laughs> yeah, and I think you know what we've noticed is how many of our customers immediately were able to adapt to that crisis because they already had a routine for shocks, right? They already had a way of thinking of the entire market. And I'm not saying that COVID isn't a tremendous problem. It is, but for them as a modeling exercise, it was just another variable. Yeah. Yeah. True. They they were able to say, okay, now how does that change demand? How does that change our marketing? What messages need to change? How do we change pricing? And we have people in travel and hospitality, right? I mean, nobody hit harder than them. True. Understand it. So I think crisis can be met with routine if you have a capability, right? A lot of people turned on their crisis system and it probably got them through 60 days, but we're now learning it could be a couple of years of this. And how do I, how do I systemically adapt to, you know, openings, closings, travel, no travel, borders open, borders not, you know, there's so many dynamics that's, yeah, that's what we true. try to recreate in the simulation, the ability to adapt and make sense of those things so you can prescribe better results. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, what is the opportunity if we get this right? So what do you, for example, see with your customers in the, in the before and after stage? 
Yeah, I think there's really, our customers go through three stages and, and most of them are, I call them emotional. First off, the first one is, this is too good to be true. <laughs> Nobody can do this. You cannot predict a market. You can't predict how human behavior is going to evolve. And so they, they need a pilot. They need something to prove it. And then what we see is this kind of industrialization where all of a sudden they go from one model to maybe 20 models, but it's largely still in the analytics hands, the analytic team's hands. Yeah. And the third stage is when we, we give a, what we call like a scenario planner to the business user. So now all of a sudden the analytics team is publishing models without any kind of editorial and what you should do. And the business user has a very simple interface, right? That says, okay, if I change these things, what happens? Or I want this to happen, what things should I change? Very simple. And all of a sudden you have self-service analytics yeah. Yeah. to help people at their desktop at an enterprise collaboration level. That is the new paradigm, right? Because we don't have time for consultants. We don't, we're not sitting next to each other anymore. <laughs> There's more True. uncertainty than, than ever. And you need this kind of support, I guess, decision support. It's not decision management that can be run at scale globally in a consistent way so that this C-suite can see how decisions are made and interpret those results more consistently. Yeah, correct. Yeah, you cannot, I mean, the hierarchies from, from the past are also going to be gone at some point in time. It's exactly. organizations are flatter and yeah, they just need to be far more equipped to contribute in their own space. Because at the end also, there's an, yesterday I had a podcast or the day before that was also about like hiring people that are smarter than you, you know? I mean, you do that for a reason. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, everybody has their qualities. And at the end, if, you, if you're only hire, hiring people that are dumber than you, then you have to do it all by yourself. That's right. <laughs> and, and we think our tool makes, you know, extends people's knowledge, right? It helps yeah. them be independent. And what we're seeing, like where the demand is really taken up is, a lot of the decision support used to be face-to-face, -face, a consultant, a salesperson. Well, they can't come in. They can't travel. Yeah. Yeah, and, and the number of decisions that have to be made. I, I, used to, I used to be a consultant, go on site for three days a week, four days a week. You can't do that anymore. But people need that support, that decision support. It's going to have to be through technology. And, yeah, that's and true. It, it, the world's changed in 90 days. And a lot of the structures, I think you call them hierarchies, they're evaporating. And now we're finding that one, maybe we didn't need them as much as we thought we did. And two, there's more ways to be productive faster. True. And, you know, some people like it, some people don't, but you can see your kids more because you're there at the house and, you know, and you'd hope they go back to school or maybe not. But, you know, the, the productivity curve is completely changing. True. Yeah. In these types yeah, of you see, of course, you see those, those metrics, well, yeah, this, the ways of working change. You see uh, much more people gathering together around the project approach, whereby you kind of get the best people from the organization to, to deliver that particular project, and then they move back to their, to their original department, to their original job again. There's many, many more people from the outside, you know, the, the whole gig economy. That's and right. it's also a part of the flexibility. So at the end, technology needs to support all of that. So I'm really intrigued by like the, the journey that you took because you said started in 2010, commercialization 2017. So definitely something complex was going on there. So what made you decide 
now is the moment to, to commercialize it and get it to market. Yeah. So what happened for us was we had an idea. I had an idea really of how the, the system should work. And I was fortunate enough to have a broad enough network to do projects to calibrate components of the software so that they worked, right? I mean, they have to be very, very accurate. And so it just took, it just took time to go from, you know, here's the basic way we take in data to a product that we would say you could do it yourself, yeah. right? And the evidence for us was that we, we had a lot of consultants, uh, many of them friends of mine from former days. They came, a couple of them came in one day and said, I think it's time for you to fire us. I said, why? So we have nothing to do. The software's doing everything. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when we knew, right? That's when we knew that we had achieved this independence from, from people to support yeah. you. And so it's a matter of scale. Let me make a small interruption here. Greg just made an excellent remark about the dilemma that many software companies often have in making the impossible decision. Do we solve this through software or with services, especially when services has a target to make? Making the best decisions around these dilemmas is what remarkable software companies master. They have an incredible capability to focus on the essence and stick to their vision when the world doesn't want them to. This is how they democratize markets. And this is how they keep resourceful to deliver the impact that moves the needle, and more importantly, to keep them relevant. And these are traits that you can master as well. And to start, I would recommend that you read my book, The Remarkable Effect. You can buy it on Amazon or any other portal where they sell books online. And for those of you that want to know where you stand on a five-star scale to become the software company your customers just keep talking about, simply do the test. And you can find that test on valueinspiration.com slash Remarkable Index. Back to the interview. The independence from the consultants. Yes, independence from consultants. Yeah, yeah. Because at yeah. the end, it's about the augmentation of the, the people that actually use it. That's the funny right. thing, however, is then always, I mean, if you start off as sort of as a consultancy, the question is whether you started off as a consultancy with the, with the mindset this needs to be a product or that over time you decided, okay, this is going to be a product. Because then it's like, okay, it's going to be Christmas at some point in time. And I don't <laughs> yeah. want that. Yeah, I, I always felt that it was going to be a product. Okay. Having been a consultant and just the lifestyle, the, you know, the data issues. And, and I think what I got very sensitive to as a, as a brand person was brands were handing off their consumer research, their marketing strategy, their corporate intelligence, their business intelligence. I'm like, that, that shouldn't be going to consultants, Right. I mean, it's just too, too mission critical. And I thought there would be a growing aversion, both from a security point of view and an and a intellectual property point of view, that people just wouldn't want it. So we, we actually designed the system so that all of the data and all the modeling and everything sits behind their firewall. It, it's still a SaaS product in terms of annual recurring revenue, but we don't see the data. Okay. And that's why we've landed some really large Fortune 100 customers because they're like, this is great. We're going to be able to tell our, average, our agencies, our consultants, our supply chain, this is what we're doing instead of them you know, making the sausages for us. Yeah, exactly. So in that journey to create a product, I mean, there's, I mean I've been in the enterprise resource planning space. I mean, I think the first time I, I started to interact with BI tools, corporate performance management tools, was 
late 90s to make it part of that. So there's so many vendors out there in the world that, that say, all right, we, we provide you all the analytics. So how did you find your space where you, where you could be unique? And yeah, I, I think it was shaped by my perspectives as a consultant. So as a brand consultant, what I, certainly in the interbrand position, I was getting all the best information. And I realized at the end, all I was doing was scraping off the best insights from all the analytics. So we never positioned ourselves as a data replacement or BI tool. What we are is an integrator of all the different analytics into one central planning platform. So we're kind of the Switzerland of, you know, of analytics. And we, we really don't even talk about data because we're not looking for the data. We're looking for the analytics only. So once we found that niche, and if you think of like a quadrant of who's in the strategy space and doing something about pulling together analytics as an integration, right? Because there's all this enterprise data management to bring data together. But that data is producing analytics is, that's competing information. You know, yeah. so, and I was like, no, no, that's what's, that's what's fragmented. Let's unify it, harmonize the data, harmonize the outputs. And no one's been there. We, we haven't found any direct competitors doing the same thing. Okay. Yeah, and I mean, I think also in that space, the whole prescriptive part is, is very early days. I, I haven't seen a lot of tools doing that. No, and I, I was surprised. I, I had a bias. I didn't know I had a bias because I was working with some of the leading brands in the world who were the most sophisticated. I thought everyone was doing it. And that's, yeah. really, that's really what I got wrong. You know, there were still a lot of people just building up their data capability, just getting some attribution models some historical looks at performance. And that's really shaped up in the last, you know, three or four years where people have completed that journey. And our favorite, like, product we like to see is someone has, like, a Tableau or a Click or some kind of tool that tells them about the past. Because after they stare at that for about a month, they're like, well, tell me what's going to happen next. And we're like, yep. hey, nice to meet you, right? And yep, uh, exactly. we see that, you know, I think Gartner calls it mode one and mode two. You know, mode one being historical, mode two being forward. Now, a lot of people are struggling just to get their predictions running. But once you have the prediction, the very next thing is the prescription. And we have both of those. And that's, that's, true. Up, yeah. Yeah, that's up and live for us. So we've got, you know, we were just really excited about the progress we made. And someone said, oh, it's 10 years. I'm like, it was a really hard problem. You know, it wasn't so yeah. easy. A buddy of mine worked at GE and he travels. He's retired. He travels the world. And I said, what did you do? He said, I invented the carbon blade, you know, for the, for the engine. I said, how long did it take? He said, 30 years. There you go. <laughs> yeah. He said it was just at the moment hard. you look at it in hindsight, it's like, okay, it was, it's almost like yesterday. That's certain right. Things are, certain things are definitely hard to do. And that's also, I actually wrote a blog about it this morning. <laughs> um, you know? No, no, serious. If you look at, let me see. If you look at what, yeah, what you're doing, how easy it is, for, is it for a competitor to copy you? That question isn't asked enough. And if it was easy, everybody would be doing it first in the first part. But that's, a, that's, I think, a lot of the time the issue with companies failing at the end. They, they are just creating something that has been done many, many times before, and they just become a little bit better. That's right. And I think there's the difference in when you have a sustainable moat around your product that's based on IP, right? And we've had six or seven people come into the market and say they can forecast but to sustain it at scale with the level of accuracy, 
you know, it's like that old, did you ever see Raiders of the Lost Ark? Did you see that movie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so remember when the guy burns his hand on that medallion, but yep. there's the other side? You know, you can look at our interface and think you've got it, but there's a whole other underside of all the details and all the science and all the algorithms that make, you know, a click of a button look simple. I mean, everyone says, uh-huh. oh, I'm you know, overnight success is like, you know how hard it was for them to get a one click button and stimulate a global supply chain? It took them 20 years. Yeah, true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but today, if you just walked up, you go, oh, that's easy. It's like, that wasn't easy. That was, a- yeah. Yeah. In my book, I call it make it magically happen. And yeah, if the moment you see that and you get that wow, people don't really understand what's behind it often. It can be yeah. very simple, but it can also be extremely difficult. So, it always intrigues me talking about the route that you took with your products. What have you, yeah, what has been the kind of the, the specific thing in, in your product that really makes it stand out and gives it its defensible differentiation, as, as I would call it? Yeah, I think it, it, it revolves around our values as a company. You know, we, have, we, we think of kindness as a value, efficiency, quality, you know, and how we conduct ourselves. But the core of what we stand on is what we call science uh-huh. and, and that the the reason our product stands out is that it's based on observable facts right so you can have analytics and interpret them but at the end of the day we're forecasting shipments we're forecasting number of tickets sold number of cars sold an observable fact and there's no disputing like how many pounds of dog food you shipped right you can dispute the price and the margin and how it was done and so at the core of our, our system is this kind of hypothesis testing that says, we think this is going to happen and we have to prove it every week, every day, in a sense, that this thing can forecast because people observe the facts, you know, and you, you yep. can have, you know, what we call cognitive dissonance and say, hey, my, my idea and the world aren't aligning. And the question is, what do you do about it? You know, do you uh-huh. change your interpretation of the facts or do you change your attitudes, behaviors and beliefs? we're leading people to the attitudes, behaviors, and beliefs because they're stuck with the observable fact. We said we're going to sell a million and we did, or we didn't. So it's that scientific principle about hypothesis, acceptance, and rejection based on observable facts. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, this is also going into the whole notion of explainable AI. And a lot of times it happens in a black box, but you have to just explain it and all the facts behind it so that it becomes something that they can explain to their peers. That's and say, okay, do we agree or not agree? This is possibly the best the best we can get from here. Let's go for it. Yeah, and if people were watching me on the podcast, I'd be not, nodding my head going, yeah, that's exactly <laughs> right. And I think when we thought of this solution, not only do we have a modeling challenge, but we also solved a people and process challenge because you have to build a consensus around the model. And the yeah. way we design the workflow requires that you build consensus. You can't actually like move forward without getting the business user in the room. You, you can't, you know, agree on the data without the data team signing off. I mean, we actually have like buttons where we force them to, did you get this person? You know, does everyone agree? Oh, really? Yeah, because they don't, you know, in fairness, people, they don't know how to collaborate. I mean, we talk about everyone should collaborate and it's like, okay, well, how do you do it? You know, it's like. Yeah, true. And I think what yeah, it says on your website technology and process that brings people together that brings your people together yeah yeah that's where it's coming from (laughs) makes sense there's a lot to say about alignment (laughs) 
you know, we looked at the reasons projects succeed or fail. 60% of the time when they fail, it's alignment. So somewhere yeah. in there, someone drifts, they don't keep it together. They didn't write a project charter. They don't remember why they started. I mean, little things. That's the case. Yeah, true. Yeah, little things. So we get, we teach, we, we've actually embedded a project charter into the software. Like, you have to, okay, we've filled out, here's our objective, here are our measures, this is a criteria for success. Like, their fields you have to fill in, so you can't skip them. Yeah, that's true, yeah. Well, I need to come from somewhere, somewhere at the end. No so, I mean, what is also intriguing me, sorry? sorry? Yeah, so, no one getting any training on collaboration, so we try and help no. them with the workflow. Yeah, that's true, yeah. Yeah, you don't uh, get to learn that at school, indeed. And it's so powerful. The moment you get, you ask for feedback, you get the feedback, you, when people start to kind of remove your blind spots. I see that, for example, in the tribe that, I'm, that I've started in, in February, that is such a valuable thing. If people are in the same room, in the same mastermind, for example, and, and suddenly you get these aha moments of th something they haven't thought about because you're too close to the product, to the problem. Right. Yeah. So what was the toughest decision on this journey? And how did you overcome that yeah i think there was a lot of pressure to sell out to services you know to say oh you know don't work so hard on the technology that's what i mean yeah be a consultant you know be a consultant come on you know you can make a lot more money and i don't know there's probably three or four times when we we're offered money as investments and we we're offered large contracts that would have derailed our ability to keep moving. And it's not so much that you gave up the money, but it's also the fact that you put the, the company's future at risk. Yeah. Cause there were days, you know, when it was down to days on cash flow, we, Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And you're like, Hey, you know, integrity is not, not stealing from your neighbor. It's having a vision and sticking to it when the world doesn't want you to, <laughs> you know, and I Good point. probably could have exited it if I would go back to consulting, but I don't think that's the purpose of the company. And I, and I don't think it's what the world needed. They need another consultant. They needed a tool to enrich their intelligence so they could be more powerful and be in charge of it instead of it being in charge of them. Yeah. Yeah. It's a continuously returning topic of the, the persistence. That that's you, right. Because at the end, you know, you're doing something that has not been done before. There's no map, there's no manual. So you're creating your own path. And the question at the end is sometimes like, okay, are we, are, do we still believe you're on, this right, on the right track? And sometimes it's really hard to do. You, you actually need a tool like you're, like you're creating yourself. We use, it every, we use it every week, right? We're like, no, no, just hang in there. Just hang in there. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I can really understand. And if it's not clear to everybody that we're like what we are for, and who we are for and, and what, is it, what is the purpose of why we are together here kind of putting the work in. If people think it's, we are, we're there for the services part. Yeah, I mean, like I said, it's like uh, feeling like turkey for, for Christmas. That's right. <laughs> but it's good that at some point they came to you and said you have to fire us because we don't, we're not needed anymore. And then, then the flags nothing, go out. I've got nothing to do. That's, <laughs> that's where it was all achieved. So, I mean, I, I wrote this book and I told you about it, The Remarkable Effect. And in that book, I revealed the 10 traits of, of what creates pro, well, companies, software companies that people talk about that are worth making a remark about, as uh, Seth Godin would call it. So I'm always interested to hear from entrepreneurs that are not in my book yet. 
<laughs> what I believe are kind of the, the, the must-haves in people or in companies to, to stand out and to continue to stay stand out. And I think from the story that you're telling here, you, 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 you maybe have some extra flavor here around the, uh, growing the brand value. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, there, for me, there's like two really strong components. You have two missions you have to win. One is whatever technical innovation you're delivering, right? And that, that has its own set of challenges around productivity and getting it right and making it usable. But you've also, if you're going to be doing something really breakthrough, have to have a very strong sense of mission and purpose and values because everyone in the company at some point will have to draw on those to face the fear of failure. And more importantly, and I didn't really understand that, face the fear of success. Interesting. Right, because people aren't used to being successful, right? They're not used to, like, we, we, we keep a chart of how many assets we're managing from our customers, you know, besides a marketing budget, production budget. We're up to $40 billion in assets under management. $40 wow. billion. And so if you're a developer, right, and, uh, you know, you're great at UI, UX, and all of a sudden you get this report because we share it, that you're influencing $40 billion worth of decisions, capital allocation. It suddenly becomes really, really, really scary. <laughs> and that's, where, that's right. And that's where you have to push people back and not push, but remind them of what the values are. It's based on science, it's based on efficiency. We test for quality and we try and do it in a kind way, understanding that this is new for people and they can deal with it. So I think yeah. you have to have a clearer understanding of both missions, the financial mission, and certainly your investors won't let you forget that, <laughs> but the, the like human mission or the, the, the contract you're making with yourself and society and the people you're bringing in, you have to almost spend more time on that to get people prepared for success. Wow. So, so how do you do that? Can you give an, an, an anecdote on that? Well, my inspiration for that is a guy named Frederick Herzberg. He wrote, once again, how do, you, how do you motivate employees? And he wrote it in the 1960s, a Harvard Business Review article. And then he wrote it like 35 years later because he went around the world proving it. And basically, the way he, he sees people is that your job as a manager is to enrich the expertise of the people around you. And so it becomes a real servant mission to be of service to you, the people who work for you. And then they'll do the rest, right? Yeah. They'll, do, they'll do the rest. And I think, you know, the anecdote on that is for a couple of months now during COVID, I've gone back to the sales team and we have a daily sales training because we're reinterpreting what we said in the context. And I'm like, you're the CEO of the company. I'm like, yep. And it's that important that you understand the world we're up against that I've been, I've been doing it for three months. They're like, you're here every day. I'm like, that's an anecdote, yeah. right? Yeah. You, have to, you have to give up something of yourself. And there's some mornings, I don't want to do it. <laughs> I need more coffee, you know? And, but that's as I'm saying, you, you have to put yourself aside and say, this mission requires me to do this, even though I, I, it's, it's tough. Yeah. Funny enough, yesterday I recorded a podcast with uh, Frank Schneider, uh, CEO of Speak... 
speakeasy.ai. And he actually, when, it, when I asked him about the three words to define him, one of the words was servant. Yeah. And it, and, and it was more or less a similar story of, of that. So it, it's, yeah, that's, I agree. It's a really, really important thing. Now, I think it brings you further as a company as well if you've got that, that mindset because then it, you create involvement and that's an engagement of people. And you role model what you want everyone else to do for everyone else yeah, who comes that's in true. Behind, right? And, yeah. you know, we're sitting in nice places today with air conditioning and food and security. You know, we're, we're the most fortunate people in the history of, of the world. And there's so many people have so much less. We've been given yeah, exactly like it's our, our, our duty to give back in some way, somehow. And hopefully that cascades out and makes the world a little bit more efficient and safer. Yeah. Well, that's noble. One of the things you just mentioned, and I wrote it down here, it's like it's new for people. And I, that's a, that is sort of also a red thread to my podcast because typically all those stories are about transformative, transformative scenarios of things we, we've either been really, yeah, how do you say that? We've become used to it, and, but, but don't see how, how bad it really is. And then it's like really taking a leap there. Sometimes it's something that we haven't even been, been thinking of that it was possible, but now it is possible. So how do you deal with that? How do you kind of put something into the market where people are not even asking for? Yeah, I'd probably say badly. You know, I, 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 I did. <laughs> I, I, I don't. When we first went out, you know, we were so, so enthusiastic of the results we were seeing. We, we forgot what what it meant to some people maybe i'm losing my job maybe i'm losing my influence maybe huh. you know all all these fears and i think we you know we're chatting before you know one of my strengths i think is the forgiveness and and i saw like how difficult that would be for people my my earliest career was in organizational development and process reengineering and i was fortunate enough to see that when things change, people can get very afraid and well, they should, right? There's lots of good reasons for them not to trust their corporations or governments or the economy. True. Yeah. And, but, and that's when we added a value that we tried to live out, which was kindness. Like to think about what that person's going through, what problems they're solving. And when you work from where people are instead of where you think they should be, it became less of a problem. Because yeah. we talk to them candidly. Are you afraid about your job? Are you, you know, is your company ready for this? Because we've told people, hey, y'all really aren't ready and you shouldn't do this. It's sure. too painful. You, you might want it as an individual. It's too painful. Let's, we'll give it a year or two. Hopefully yeah, yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll be here. You know? <laughs> but I think. Well, on the other end, I mean, I, I would definitely see that with, with, with the traditional use of AI, which is about automating people, uh, automating things. That is like, okay, I used to do this myself. So what am I going to do next? This is about, at the end, making them better. That's right. And it's a big distinction between augmenting intelligence and artificial intelligence. And we're really working hard to build a narrative on our blog posts and our content around augmenting intelligence, which is a means of enriching people through learning. And true. That, that I totally believe, well, I know, well, I have enough experience to believe that you'll never get rid of the need for that. Sure, you can make, you know, filing invoices faster or something or reading, you know, certain things, documents faster, but we need people. We need their inspiration and creativity and our system yeah. is designed to help them, not replace exactly. them. 
Yeah, I mean, I was recently, I did a podcast again with Vinnie Merchandani, ex-Gartner analyst, but also wrote, uh, I think, three or four versions of uh, SAP Nation. And he's always talking about the, the, the three Ds in terms of, well, the things that actually should go away, the, the dull, the dirty, and the dangerous parts. <laughs> and I mean, sometimes people are so hung up to it, like, this is what I do. But I mean, do you like it? Do you think you should do it? And I mean, Brian Falkenberg, one of the earliest CEOs that was on my podcast, he, I mean, he had a very clear vision that people are actually trapped in the role of a robot. Shouldn't be that way. Now free them up. Let them do what they're good at. That's right. Yeah, we, we wanted to name our HR department the intrinsic value of people department, <laughs> you know, because everyone has like really great skills, but how often do they get to use them? And even when they get our system where they start to have a chance, since they're untrained, they're like little calflings, right? They're, they're shaky and you just got to give them enough time to get their feet under them and build up some muscle strength. And then, then you can't get rid of them, but it's great. It's true. <laughs> One thing, I mean, not sure, well, we addressed maybe part of it, but like, what are you most proud of for what you've seen between launching this and where you are today? I mean, are there any anecdotes of a customer or, or things that you just keep talking about? Yeah, I mean, I think there's certainly like early days, Netflix was a customer of ours and I, I was in 2012 and we were doing things for them and seeing that our model really reflected the trajectory of their business made me feel really good. So many cases of people making investments and they're working, you know, I, I'm now spoiled. I don't believe the system works. I know it works. Yeah. And that's a terrible bias to take to new people, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> it can, it can be, you know, confusing for them. But I, I think the thing I'm proudest of is uh, just sticking with the integrity to the idea that, you know, human beings are incomplete. That draws me closer to them. They need help. And I wanted to build a tool to make brands be better citizens to the world by making them more efficient, by, by addressing customer needs. We talked about it for the podcast, you know, maintaining their relevance. Yep. I don't know what's going to be relevant in the world. It's not my place to decide, but I think companies will do right things when there's good money attached to it. And I think our system helps them find that unfindable where you can meet the zeitgeist of consumers, the needs of the world and the shareholder productivity. It's been our vision since day one. I'm just holding to that when there's hundreds of shortcuts to take. I feel like I put my There are down. no shortcuts. You know, you have yeah. to go do the hard work and, and then you, you see it pays off. And I think I put, you know, I think me and the whole team, I'm very happy with the team and their contributions and rely on tremendously. We put our little dent in the universe and hopefully make it a little bit bigger. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, hopefully you come and enter that, that famous, uh, there was this person that created this, this list for Interbrand, the top 100 <laughs> famous brands in the world. Yeah. <laughs> and you should be on there. So out of everything that you've learned as a CEO in the last, well, 10 years, what is a, what is a key lesson that you, that you would like to transfer to other people that aspire to, uh, to do what you're doing? Yeah, I think, I think the thing that I learned the most, and it took me a very long time, is that investors are not rational. They're not rational. They, they're emotional. 99% of the time they claim and you expect them to be rational, but they're, 
they're emotional. And that doesn't mean they're not intelligent. They don't use due diligence. But a lot of their decision-making is not based on data and facts. And I think you have to be careful, you know, because you can take advantage of that. You, you can call yourself a great entrepreneur because you can relate, raise a lot of money. That's just being good at raising money. And I think being specific enough and detailed enough and consistent enough with them creates great partnerships. And I, I for years, I didn't want investors because I didn't, I didn't know how to talk to them, and, I, and therefore, I unfairly didn't trust them. But now I do trust no, them. No, I think that's the word, trust. Yeah, I, I didn't know how to trust them. I, not that they're not trustworthy. And now, the people we work with, the, the, the VCs who come to us, the partnerships we're building in that community are so creative and so enriching. But, you know, I, I was going to the hardware store looking for milk. You know, <laughs> that wasn't a good idea. Now I know how to get milk at the grocery store and hardware at the hardware store. So yeah, I think you, you have to see them as, as customers who are trying to understand as well. And yeah, and I, yeah. I, I'm good. I'm better at it now. I certainly wasn't good in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good analogy. I like that because they are indeed a customer and they, I mean, they want to have value from their investment, same as a customer wants to have value from their investment. And sometimes we forget about it. Sometimes actually we are pitching in a completely different way to investors talking about the big picture and like the value that's in there. And we forget to talk about it to customers because we, with customers, we talk, we talk about features. <laughs> yeah. and, and, the, and the feature that an investor wants is a return on investment. So you need to be able to explain that to them. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Get your HP 12B calculator out and keep going. That's right. So what is next for you? What is next for concentric market? Yeah. So we're, we're, months time? Yeah. So we've, you're it's odd to say it, but we should say it. We're having a good year, right? Uncertainty is a thing that we solve for people. So we're, yeah. we're probably going to see triple digit growth this year. Yeah. It's crazy. could be 80, hundred. And we see a tremendous deepening in our existing customers. So we, we want to scale that up, not only with them, but find the right venture partner, right investment line because we have a formula now and it, it's repeatable and scalable and we just like to make it bigger you know and, yep. and whatever that means it's there's no real in date or in state in mind but you know with 20 30 customers there's a lot of the world yet to count conquer right oh yeah it's just starting just starting i think yeah. i mean if you even if you're just looking at, at the street where your where your office is you know then <laughs> yeah <laughs> Well, that's, a famous, that's a, that's a famous street. Square mile in the world, right? Kendall Square. <laughs> exactly. Hopefully, yeah, we'll be true. part of that legacy. Hopefully, we'll be part of that legacy. Absolutely. Yeah. Create percentage point eighteen. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. Well, well, where can people go well, to learn more about concentric markets to help them solve the uncertainty that they're suffering from? Yeah, that is our website: www.concentricmarket.com. There's a lot, there's a resource tab there. You know, we've got some good video testimonials, some white papers, and just give us a shout. We'll be happy to kindly explain what we're doing. Okay. And, and how can people best reach you? Is that also through the website or is it, for example, LinkedIn? LinkedIn. Yeah, that's fine. Or they can just email me, Greg Silverman. It's Greg at concentricmarket.com. Happy to talk to anybody who's interested. Okay, in what we're perfect. Doing. Well, thank you very much for your time. This was yeah, music to my ears, but that's why I invited you in the first place. And I hope it inspired people to think a little bit different about the products that they create, the value they want to create in the market.
And if, if we can get that message across, you're making a step far ahead. Exactly. Thanks for your podcast, your point of view. It's really refreshing and great chatting with you. Appreciate all the time you've given me. It was a pleasure. And this ends my conversation with Greg. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. We'd really value your feedback, so please share your thoughts or questions about this episode. And if you liked it and got inspired by it, please share it with other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that you have in your network. Other than that, thanks for tuning into this podcast. I had the honor to speak to Greg Silverman, CEO of Concentric Market. As said, the goal that I have in this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. Before I close, I have two more comments to make. If you know other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that have a story worth sharing, please send me an email at ton.dobby at valueinspiration.com. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas. And that starts with you. And if you want to know more about my book or you're interested in joining the Remarkable Effect tribe, please visit my website at www.valueinspiration.com. Thanks for tuning in. And you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast on iTunes or provide me with your feedback directly. I'll see you shortly on a new episode. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.